Lord God, please use this time now uh, for your valuable kingdom work. Help us to understand your dialogue with the disciples on the, the night that you were betrayed and denied. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen. amen. Everybody ought to have a, a one-page study sheet, but it's got front and back on it. So just pick up one. I put ones in the... Uh, Three years ago, I uh, began to explore uh, Jesus' Upper Room Discourse. And Jesus' Upper Room Discourse goes from John 13 through 17. And I thought, you know, wouldn't it be great to sort of um, delve into this deeply, to really give it a Lectio Divina reading, which is an early church Latin phrase for deep reading of the text. I tend to enjoy preaching large portions of scripture. Uh, so this was uh, a, a bit of a change of pace for me. And the idea was, uh, Lent was really special at First Presbyterian Church of San Diego where Virginia and I served for 14 years. Every Lent we would take on particularly difficult passages of scripture. Isaiah, Jeremiah, um, the prophets. We took the book of Revelation one year. And all of our small groups just during Lent were reconfigured cross-generationally and geographically focused. And so you know, we had 250 to 300 out of our 900 morning attendants in these small groups. And each one were led by a person who the week before went over the biblical text of Jeremiah, Isaiah, whatever. Uh, in preparation and we created a study book and so for these seven weeks the whole church was very focused and I experienced what it was like to preach on a text that at least a third of the congregation had really read had prayed over questioned thought about and had been led through before Sunday and it really heightened the awareness of the text and a hunger for the word. I mean, you're really preaching to people who are hungry. Well, when I came to Beeson and didn't have the opportunity to lead the church in that, but was involved teaching now, uh, uh, this thought occurred to me, let's do it with John 13. And so the first year was the God who kneels, um, which ought to strike us as a bit of an ironic statement the God who kneels. It drives home the truth of the incarnate one, that indeed Jesus is God, fully God, fully human. And that, uh, we focused on John 13 for 40 days. And then the second year, John 14, let not your heart be troubled, do you believe in God, believe also in me, John 14, 1, you often hear it at funerals. I took 14 through 15 and into 16 on the God who comforts. And in those sections, there's really four ways that Christ comforts us. Not in the ways that we might actually wish or anticipate, but it's through, he comforts us through his passion, through his death on the cross, through the giving of the perkelete, the Holy Spirit, through the parousia, the promise of his second coming, 
And fourthly, his presence. So one of these weeks, we will look at the God who comforts uh, and look at those four dynamics that Jesus uh, works out with the disciples. And then this year, and it's posted on my website, you could get a daily devotional every day. Uh, it was cute. Somebody, an older woman uh, from, I mean, okay, 80s, said to me on Thursday that she was really enjoying uh, the Lenten series that, that we're in and, and studying it and reading it. And she said, but it's not a devotional. It's theology. And in these one day, page and a half, she caught it. She understood. I, I am actually sort of trying to circumvent, as it were, and get people interested in really in-depth Johannine theology in Jesus' upper room discourse. All that to say is that I think 13 through 17 is just as valuable as the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. This is really critical. This is the last night that Jesus will spend with his disciples. And he covers a lot of ground and communicates to us an awful lot of what the life of discipleship should look like. Well, let's start with John 13 at the beginning. If you have Bibles, that's great. Um, I probably should have copied out on a page the text. Um, so either find it on your device or listen really well, okay? It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And then the Lord, Simon Peter, replied, Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. Let's stop there. Do you understand what I've done for them? How have you interpreted this passage in the past? It's a really familiar text, isn't it? So how is it interpreted often? 
redemption we can receive on the cross, Well, you've already jumped to the deep theological truth of the passage, just right off. Sometimes people sort of present it or interpret it as like Jesus was a servant. He was, mm-hmm. you know, he served and sort of like this servant leadership kind of thing or something like that. So the, the moralistic interpretation of this passage isn't going to fly here, is it? No. It's going to have to be that in-depth atonement understanding. So, let's pose this question. What in this passage indicates this deep theological meaning? How do we know that? Because often, sort of in the vernacular of the popular culture, it has to do with a good moralistic leadership lesson. Jesus, CEO, uh, a book written by uh, an executive guidance uh, guru, uses this passage as an illustration of what top-down, people-oriented leadership is all about. She uses Jesus in that sense. But what in this text itself indicates that it is deeper? Now, I've identified, and this is, if you, uh, you'd have to be actually looking at this, I think, to probably uh, see these indicators, or you're working from a good memory. But it was just before the Passover. That would be number one that would indicate that this has a theological depth to it because it's framed now by the Passover. Jesus knew that the hour, that would be your second deep meaning indicator, the hour. Because what does the hour stand for in the Gospel of John? Remember at the wedding feast of Cana of Galilee, he says to his mother, my hour has not yet come. And the hour, if you trace that through the Gospel of John, is, uh, and in the Greek it's this kairos moment, as opposed to a chronos moment. Time measured in minutes and months and decades, that's chronos time, chronological time. But the thought here is this is kairos time, God's grace-filled, powerful time. So you've got the Passover, the hour, He knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Uh, The ascension, which is, you know, really, to me, it's it's very interesting that Luke 9.51, the text that I referred to in the 9 o'clock service, that knowing that he was going to ascend to heaven. Oftentimes we don't pay a lot of attention to the ascension, but here in 9.51 the ascension is referred to, and here the ascension is referred to, to leave this world and to go to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the... Wow. Wow. We won't call that a Kairos moment. <laughs> Are you okay? Wow. You're tough. Uh, sorry. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Well, that brings in this the whole scope of all that Jesus intends to do for us is in his mind. For the Passover, 
the hour. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And the evening meal was in progress, and the devil, well, the devil shows up. Again, and I believe in a, uh, I believe in a personal devil. I believe in a being that is uh, evil personified and is very real. And uh, the mystery of evil uh, is indeed, I think, a mystery. We don't know its origins. Um, we don't know how this came to be. There's hints of it, like in Ezekiel, but it, in the vaguest terms. But the Bible definitely defines a ultimate kind of evil person. Um, and the devil has prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. So Passover, the hour, loved his own, even loving them, uh, how he's going to love them to the end, and the presence of the devil. And Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. So you see, you know, we're, getting, we're really getting away from any kind of moralistic interpretation of this text. There's so much theologically that John invests in the description of what's taking place here. The, the, he's giving a prologue to the event that uh, smacks of the supernatural reality of what is uh, about to take place. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with his towel. So we've got five aspects and a sixth that is. So he got up from the meal and took off his outer clothing. Now that's not just language that, that language is invested with meaning. If you were, uh, I'm, I'm casting right now, okay, I'm fishing. Uh, obviously, I'm fishing. Is there a passage of scripture in Paul that you might see as comparable to and in stereo with John 13? Well, you're on to it, Charles. I mean, that, that image of taking off and putting on is, is an image that's in play here. But think of another Pauline passage. I'm casting. I, this is not good teaching when you do this. This, is, this isn't how you're supposed to do it. But it sometimes gets people's attention more. Uh, what Pauline passage, Paul, is the um, taking off? Taking off the old self. Okay. That Romans and Corinthians idea. Keep coming. The great Christ hymn in Philippians. Where Jesus emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, and humbling himself even to the point of death. The taking off of his outer clothing is comparable to and parallel to Paul's idea of him taking off his deity and putting on his humanity. Uh, that's the sixth aspect 
the simple language of taking off. And wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. Verse 6, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, no. And if the seventh one, I'm going to skip down to verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet. Now where else in the Gospel of John is the word finished of acute significance? Yeah, it is finished. And it's the same word. And so the case that we're making here is that the full scope of Christ's atoning sacrifice is in play from the beginning of chapter 13 all the way to the end. And so there is a continuum from foot washing to crucifixion. It's an interesting picture here because two things are happening. The doctrine of the atonement is being played out and illustrated and in kind of parallel, parable form. It's the last parable that Jesus gives before the cross. As well as the whole idea of what discipleship looks like, the praxis of discipleship. So the doctrine of the atonement and the picture of discipleship, what it means to follow him, both are in play in this upper room discourse. And John's real intentional about showing that. Passover, our, knowing he's going to the Father, loving them with the love that he'll carry with them to the end, the presence of the devil, all of that is affirming this kind of deep theological meaning of what you could just skip over. This, this very familiar passage, uh, you know, is interesting. In a church we served in San Diego, there was this famous uh, Jesus on the road to Emmaus picture in the back of the sanctuary. And we all just walked by it. It was there for years. It becomes just part of the wallpaper not part of the meaning. And we need to rescue maybe John 13 from being part of the wallpaper so that it does have the poignancy in the Gospel of John that it was intended to have. So these seven deep theological indicators, and I, now, follow me here if you would, I, I'm, I'm suggesting that these seven deep theological indicators also have correspondence with your life. That they are seven deep theological indicators for you personally. The notion of the Passover grounds all kind of hospitality and liturgy and life together in the redemptive work of God. The Passover becomes fulfilled in what Christ does for us. We don't celebrate the Passover as such, but we celebrate the Eucharist. And that Eucharist is at the center of our life together. It's the center of meaning for uh, capturing the essence of our salvation. And so the Passover has its comparable correspondence with, with you and me and how we live life and how we live it together. The hour. Uh, funny. I have um, a wonderful 80-something-year-old Chinese woman who lives in Hawaii, but I knew her husband well before he died, and we have kept contact with one another. She read this part in the devotional about 
our Kairos timing. And she wrote to me, she's, a, you know, she's Asian, and it was kind of a curt, uh, she wrote, Doug, I've never had a Kairos moment. What do you mean by Kairos moment? What are your Kairos moments? Grace. That was the extent of the email. And she was kind of almost sort of peeved by my use of Kairos. Well, have I ever had a Kairos moment, she said. So I wrote back to her right away. And I, I said, Grace, when you prayed and you fought and you struggled to keep Phnom Penh Bible School on track, that was a Kairos moment for you. By that, I mean the commitment of ourselves. And, and you kind of know when, it, when you experience in God's kingdom work, in your family, a kairos moment, a strategic moment in which God, by his grace, meets you in that moment. We, too, have the hour, as it were, that kairos sense about our life. Because of Jesus Christ's hour, we have an hour. We're not just, it's not just chronological time. It's not just minutes following months. You know, it's not just putting in time. There's a sense of Kairos. Now, it'd be interesting. Can you think of moments in which you would say, by God's grace, you experienced a Kairos moment? I don't know if I should open it up or just, uh, I want you to be thinking about that though. Um, and I certainly don't want to put anybody on the spot. Um, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It is the love of Christ that defines, I'm just, these seven deep theological indicators that this is not a morality play. This is a parable of the cleansing work of Christ on the cross. <clears throat> have correspondences to our own lives, and we could develop that. In verse 3, there's seven verbs that describe the action. And uh, uh, this is one of the things that uh, I think is just so important to bring. John is just so, he's so much a poetic pastor. I, I believe that he wrote the book of Revelations as well. And that's a different side of the poet-pastor coming out, the kind of apocalyptic, cosmic poet-pastor. But here he keeps with a very simple, almost monosyllable kind of expression, but it's carefully crafted. Jesus knew the Father had put all things under his power so that he had come from God and was returning to God. He had nothing to prove, and every, all authority was with him. Verse 4, notice the simple verbs. There's seven verbs that describe this act. He got up. He took off. He wrapped a towel. That's three. Then the fourth, he poured water in a basin. Fifth, began to wash the disciples' feet. And sixth, drying them with the towel. Okay? He got up. He took off. He wrapped he poured, he began to wash, and he dried with the towel. Those are six. I said there were seven. What's the seventh? He got up, he took off, he wrapped, he poured, he washed, he dried. 
Now, it's just sort of, isn't that interesting that, you know, they could have just said, wash the disciples' feet. But you are taken deliberately, step by step, through this process. But what's the missing verb? He loved. He certainly, yeah. He loved. Pardon? He forgave. He forgave. These are true, no doubt. But I'm talking about a physical act. Well, he would have had to have kneeled. Exactly. The kneeling is left out. Where in these seven verbs would he have knelt? It doesn't say, you know, physically it's not described that he knelt, but he can't do this apart from kneeling. Before he washed. Before he washed. So we've got, um, he got up, he took off, he wrapped. So kneeling would be where? In the center. John is aware of this. He's conscious of this. He is... Once, when I was preaching, to the surprise of everybody, um, and I hadn't thought about this, it wasn't something that I had kind of planned to do at all, I just fell to my knees. I guess I wanted to draw attention to the fact that you can't do these verbs apart from being on your knees. We can't really do a lot of the work that God has called us to do apart from this kind of humility, this kind of submission. And that's why you know, we, we kind of belong to the, um, to the towel and basin crew. Uh, we kind of belong to the party of people that uh, get down on their knees in order to get their work done. Um, I would like parents to realize that uh, there's a lot of knee work in parenting. Um, not only the kneeling to pray, but the, the kneeling to serve, as in this case. So this is a vivid physical picture of the life of the disciple. He got up, he took off, he wrapped, he knelt. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet drying them with his towel. Uh, let's take a look at this study sheet. I've kind of wanted to work without referencing it, but um, we've got a, just a few minutes here. The beauty of the gospel narrative can be likened to a well-made instrument. Any of you play an instrument? Now that's a that's not a an embarrassing question. That's uh that's just a simple straightforward question. What do you play? Piano. Do you remember those days when you didn't know how to play and the process of learning how to play? I think there's something like that going on with our interpretation of scripture. You really kind of learn to interpret you learn to pay attention. You learn the feel of the instrument, and in this case, the feel of the Gospel of John. And uh, Alectio Divina, this close reading of the text, requires kind of a real care, a real paying attention. Um, the analogy I use is, you know, a, a violin, this simple pounding and two pounds of spruce and maple, can fill a whole concert hall with beautiful sound. And I would like to learn, I would like, I think this should be a, a general Christian concern, 
that all of us kind of learn how to play the narrative of the gospel. We learn that. It becomes part of us. Uh, number two, think of the spirit-inspired apostle as a poet painting a literary Rembrandt. Each square inch of the canvas deserves our scrutiny. Without a hint of embellishment, John paints with words. Three, to be attentive to the upper room experience, we need a deep reading of the text, a Lectio Divina reading. Online surfing and scanning is changing the way we think and affects our meditation on the word. I mean, this really is... Um, I now can't give students an assignment that's online because they object. They don't read it well, and they know they don't read it well. They've got to either have a book or they've got to have a, uh, an article handout. Uh, I can't just give them a, a, an assignment to, to, look at the, uh, to look at it online because they just scan it. We're talking about, and I probably, I'm going to wrap this up because, and you can pray for me. It's been a long time since I've done three services in a Sunday school class in between. Um, I may start talking John 13 in the 11 o'clock service. Uh, Monday, Thursday has always meant a lot to the church. Monday, Latin for mandate, for command. The new commandment that I give unto you, that you love one another as Christ loved us. Uh, this new commandment, love, um, is at the heart of what we're going to study for four weeks or so as we move toward Easter in this Lenten study in this upper room. So uh, you might look this over if you're interested and just read and meditate on John 13 as a key of preparation, 13 and 14, read through 13 and 17. And, and think of yourself as a disciple that night in the room. Uh, pedagogically, we have achieved something if I get you in the room, that you feel that you have a seat at the table, that you're watching the dynamic between Judas and Peter that you enter into the conversation, that you hear Thomas ask and Philip ask, and that there's a sense that I'm present here too, um, and I belong here. Uh, I think that this is real critical uh, material for understanding what our life as a disciple is all about. Any comments, any questions?